to the official podcast of the Canberra Raiders. Habili off the seas out now. He puts a kick out. Croke is there against. Oh, Jared Croker! What a catch by the skipper! Come join us as we go behind the limelight. And you do so so well, our valued podcast listener. G'day. Welcome to the Raiders podcast, the official Cam Raiders podcast behind the limelight. I'm Raider Nick and joined once again by our usual panel members, the media group here at the Canberra Raiders, Benny Pollock, Tommy Logan, gents, how are we? Yeah, good, thanks, mate. Um, obviously, a huge afternoon down there on Sunday at mm. GIA Stadium, almost 20,000 people turning out to see the Raiders and the Roosters, and they weren't disappointed. It was a, a wonderful game. Um, unfortunately, the result didn't go our way, but plenty of upside in that performance. Yeah, great up, GIO. Big crowd, uh, quality game of football, but unfortunately the result didn't go our way. But we'll go again next week, and we're you know we're up against the storm. So what better test uh, to head in uh, coming into the finals than the Melbourne Storm? The Raiders and the Storm. Thanks, Dennis Carnahan, for that. <laughs> Look, I didn't. I walked away last week, and I don't think I've ever walked away so positive after a loss. I didn't. I didn't feel that that bad. There was disappointment. Disappointment throughout the game. I thought we could have won. I thought the Roosters probably weren't at their best. They a little clunky at times. There was individual plays and brilliances and moments that probably got them in front. They got look, two tries of kicks. Mm. Um, I really feel bad for Croaks because it would have been really good for him to, to be a winner on his 250. He scored a try. Um, obviously, the fans at, at full-time, it's always better getting an autograph after a win. But again... We've shown that we, we haven't beaten those top three teams yet, but we can show we can show that we can match them round for round, pound for pound. Yeah, uh, what impressed me the most about the, the post-match stuff was the fact that the guys were actually very disappointed in the change room. Yeah. Um, they were sitting around there and it's like they just lost um, a, a massive you know, finals game because they were so disappointed. They were yeah. really keen to get that win and, and I think that's a good thing. I mean, if they were walking around going, oh, you know, you know, we were pretty good today. We we almost got there, and but they didn't have that attitude at all. They were really determined to, um, to make amends for it, and I think that they'll they'll bounce that into this weekend's game, and, and they have to because, um, when you when it comes down to the the business end of the season, you've got to play the best teams, and um, there's no better audition for that than uh, a game against the Melbourne Storm in Melbourne because uh, they are the benchmark of the competition, and they're you know leading the comp by I think six points, so um, it's going to be a huge challenge. Tommy, they Roosters came out on fire. The pendulum shifted quite a lot. Teams, uh, both teams on the back of penalties and some possession, got some points. I'm really impressed how we handled that first onslaught from the Roosters. They scored a try, a good set play there from Tedesco. And the fact that we bounced back and took the lead and we went down there twice and came around with two tries. Yeah, I think I think the Roosters were almost close to their best on mm. Sunday. They they made some plays and off the back of that, Tedesco was absolutely instrumental in everything that they He's did. They had a big year, that, that guy. I mean, that, that ball that he threw out to Daniel Tupo out wide, like... <laughs> What can you do against that? Yeah. Honestly, it's yeah, it's one of those things that when you when you're in form, those sort of things stick, yeah. um, and they just sort of happen for you. But mm. he puts himself in positions that um, that where he injects himself into a game, and uh, and that's what you got to be wary of. I mean, they've got some superstar players right across the park. There's no doubt about that, and the the quality of the actual game was just first class. I mean, Absolutely. there was hardly any hardly mm. any drop ball. Um, some really good defence from both sides uh, off their own lines. Mm. Uh, and both teams scored some really good tries as well. So, um, you know, 
it was billed all week as the match of the round, and I think it, it um, sort of turned out to be that way. The Storm Rabbitohs game was also a cracker, but yeah. the Raiders Roosters game that had that finals intensity Absolutely. and atmosphere at the ground, and <clears throat> and that's what you want. And um, I think that's only going to be a good thing for us. Eighty minute game that was uh, intensity was there for the whole duration of the match. Tommy Logan, I kind of said this on the radio. The Raiders are probably the biggest game in about three seasons, and the unfortunate thing is they could play their best football that day and still be left short because of the the opposition. Play your best, but sometimes it can't be good enough for the two points. Yeah, we played very well. Um, there was no doubt about that. But I thought the Ro- I got you got to give credit where it's due. I thought the Roosters were absolutely outstanding. They were making a lot of meters coming out of their own end, and they defended their line absolutely brilliantly. I mean, there were a few times in the second half where. You know, some of our players, I think Sia was making quite a lot of strong runs. Even Aiden Caesar made made one particular run where I thought, how did he not cross over? But mm. the, the yeah. Roosters' defence was just resilient. A lot, of, a lot of close opportunities, you know. Well, that's um, a good game. You're not going to get bogged down in referees' decisions and stuff in a game like that because, mm. you know, things went both ways. Um, but if you watch the game closely, the Roosters definitely um, were working us over in the ruck. That was a big mm. focus for them. Um, there are a number of occasions there where, you know, our usual... Um, our usual go is getting those outside backs it's momentum. And, and rolling yeah. off the back of each other with some quick runs and, and the Roosters defence was really good at stifling that so I mean that's something that we'll probably have to address and I, I'm assuming um, based on previous encounters that we're going to face a similar sort of thing against mm-hmm. the Storm this weekend I mean yeah. their focus is that um, that wrestle and that containment in the ruck um, mm. and I think we'll see that again I mean it all comes down to referees discretion and stuff on the day and like I said you're not going to get bogged down in referees mm. decisions in that game because um, you know there was things that went either way all afternoon but uh, when it comes to those big games you'd hate to see it um, you'd hate to see those big finals games ruined by um, you know slow rucks and, and scraggy rucks and things like that. You want the game to flow and you want the football to do the talking. And, of course. Um, and that's what we want to see going forward. Just before we move on to the Melbourne game overnight, another inductee into the Hall of Fame from a Raider, Ruben Wiki. Uh, that was quite valued there. He was a fantastic player, of course. Uh, Tim Brought over from Tim Sheens during the Pacific Cup from 93, debuted in 94, and he was a forward hitting out in the centres there. And it was just great to see another Canberra Raider in that Hall of Fame. Yeah, I mean, another 200-plus game player for the club. He went on to play a career of over 300, um, including his time at the Warriors. And um, and Ruben was a fan favourite here for years. Uh, Absolutely. He's, he's, a, he's a farewell game in 2005. It was one of the most emotional nights yeah. at GIO Stadium. He was in tears. The crowd was in tears. And, Doing you know, that lap was, in the car. Yeah, it was a really yeah. hard one uh, to for Raiders fans to watch. But um, what a wonderful human and uh, for those who follow him on instagram ruben wiki works go and check out his instagram page he's an absolute freak absolutely have you seen him when he's all tanned up oh he's just yeah exactly but he's he's what he does is his fitness and he's doing thousand kick sits and push-ups and stuff every day he's he's crazy you might remember this um this shows you how passionate he's about the canberra raiders the auckland warriors were recruiting uh, New Zealand guys to go back home to play for the Warriors. They've got John Money from Wigan, and he was obviously the great salesman. They'd signed Sean Hoppy, they'd signed Stephen Kearney. They took off all the New Zealand boys. And Ruben had signed some kind of expression of interest. Anyway, when the comp in 1994, they said, Ruben Wickie's our player. He went through a whole court case, went to the High Court of Canberra to void that contract to stay mm. at, for the Raiders, not right? go home. Yeah. His mum even was saying, like, I want him home. She came down and he actually missed the first three, first three rounds and he came back against, in round four against the Broncos that night. The infamous uh, Brett mm. Mullins try. He'd come on and jump at number 46 
and stayed in Canberra. That, it's a little known story. Mm. Some of the snippets at home, but he stayed. He wanted to stay in Canberra. That's how much he loved well, the town he's and still, the club. He still um, loves the club, and he's, um, he's he likes. To be, we've had him here as a Viking ambassador. Mm. He's playing the horn. Um, he actually presented. Um, Josh Hodgson with yep. his um, 100th jersey the night before the game in New Zealand two weeks ago. So yeah. that just shows you the, the passion that he has for the, the green jersey still. I mean, he loves the Warriors as well, obviously, because he spent a lot of time there and he's coaching stuff um, and things that he does alongside those guys as well. But, you know, he's definitely um, he definitely remembers where he got his first chance and where he broke onto the scene, that's for sure. Big Queemian boy. He experienced last year the interview him on his podcast and when he came down – Green last year, he actually yep. came down and he just loved it, and he he's did. just a great guy. Anyway, we move on to the Storm game. Look, there's not much to be said about the Storm. Let's talk about resting players because they've got the minor premiership. So, Craig Bellamy doesn't no want to lose against Canberra. There's, no way, in, Canberra. there's no way in the world that they will rest um, players um, in a game which could potentially be a finals audition game. Mm. Um, I think they'll be at full strength when the team sheet's named, d- depending on injury. I think Brandon Smith's still out with an ankle problem for a little bit. Um, you know, Pappenhausen was a late withdrawal last weekend. Jerome Hughes was a late withdrawal last week. So um, they've they've got a few little injury concerns, but you know they'll be at their best and they'll be they'll be wanting to to show their dominance. I mean, they did it against the top four team last week, and they'll be looking to do it again this weekend. So we we know we're going to be up for one hell of a challenge down there in Melbourne, and um, they always are a really hard game of footy. Tommy, do we take confidence in the fact that Manly beat them? By a point a few weeks ago, yeah, but I, th- I think I think that was a loss that the storm sort of had to have. Uh, I think we were talking about a few weeks ago that you know we sort of sensed that a loss was coming because they'd gone so many games without losing, and you know in rugby league, I guess you kind of have to have one of those results. But um, you know, it's like Ben said, there's no way that the storm are going to be resting on their laurels this week. They're going to come out absolutely firing, and it's a big test for us. And to be honest, we wouldn't have it any other way. You mm. know, we want to be facing these sort of teams heading into the finals, so. I'm- yeah. yeah, I know he doesn't like talking about individual matchups, but the form that both Josh Hodgson and Cameron Smith are in yeah. at the moment, mm. you know, sets up a really epic encounter. Um, because you know Hodgson's obviously got himself into a position now where he's so vital to the, the team's attack, and everything stems from that. And, and Cameron Smith, I mean, he's a freak. He just gets better and better every game. He doesn't he doesn't look like a guy that's been playing for almost twenty years and over four hundred first grade games and, yeah. and fifty tests mm. and. 50 origins and things like that. It's just, it's amazing what he can do, but he's so smart about his footy. The way that he gets himself into, injects himself into games, he knows the time when to run, he knows the time when to pass. And, Mm. um, and I think Josh Hodgson's starting to get to a point like that as well. Well, Hodger, we spoke about the fact that time can slow down when he has the football. And I think it was a a good indication of that when he set up that kick for smell to get that try. Like he just had some options, you know what to do. I'll put a little, I'll trick a little grubber in, in behind the line. There was no fullback there and bang, it led to a try. He did did well to spot the Roosters player. I don't I can't remember who it was, but they just burst out of the line, which created that gap for smell to run in behind. I really liked that. Hodjo was able to really quickly Mm. react on that. And without exposing it too much. Sorry, the one-on-one steals just continue on. There's three more on the weekend. Yeah. All from from the Englishman. Englishman. (laughs) Englishman. The the thieves are, the English strip they're the show. old convicts. They're the, wow. the thieves. So, um, it's good to see. No, it is good. It's you know, I know Trent Robinson was pretty scathing about it in the post-match press conference about does it add a, a spectacle to the game? Oh, I think it adds something. It does. Yeah, it does. It's exciting. It's um, and it you know it it is hard for the referees, the police. Don't get me wrong, but you know it is exciting. It's a big play, and if you're good at Absolutely. it, yeah. it can really turn a game. Well, just yeah. think back in the nineties, growing up. I don't know if you can remember Tommy too much, but 
you know, when you would go play the football, the markers could actually could rake strike for the ball. For the Steve ball. Walters was yep. a legend at or it. You could get Even in the scrum, the hookers. Yeah, so yeah. there was a chance where you weren't guaranteed the ball all the time. There was That's always right. a contest. Mm. The one-on-one strip brings back the contest. Okay, let's uh, review last week quickly. I'll claim the, the chocolates there. I've got wraps for a try. What did you get, Benny? Yeah, I did no good. I think I had... Um who do I have? I had Elliot the week before, but last week Tarpenay. I had Tarpany to score the opening try. No good. How good was Tarpany though? He was outstanding. Yeah, him yeah. and Pups. He's wow. like I said last week. He's starting to get himself back to that career best form. Um, it's taken him a while to you know get back over those injuries, but he's been fantastic in the last few weeks. Super player, Tommy. What did you have last week? Yeah, I got last week completely wrong as well. I, I predicted Nick to come back into the side and you know bag himself a try and really sort of torment the Roosters down on that edge, but nah, it wasn't to be. Strong return from Nicky. A couple of good carries there. Yeah, very good. He'll be better for that yeah, run. Yeah, yeah. Um, he'll be fantastic this Just week. Just so Jack. strong in that you know, centre there. All right, what about this week, gents? In terms of this week, I'm going to go for uh, a former Melbourne Storm junior player. He's going to oh. score himself a try. I believe, look, by the look at Tom's <laughs> face, I think he's going for the same thing. But I'm going for Charles Nickel Clockstad to get across the stripe, <laughs> get the try, pull the bow and arrow out and celebrate, um, which will be um, You can share the same ticket, the Tommy. Well, if you, if you have to. Yeah, look, I, I mean, I'll, I'll say my, my prediction was chance to cross over and have a game because I thought he was a bit sort of quiet by his standards last week. Um, but this week, well, now that Benny said it, I'll, I'm going to go with Bailey Simonson. I reckon he's, he's set for a big game as well. Yeah, no. he's um, he's been fantastic. Yeah, um, it's just a, it, that whole um, headache for Ricky I, just doesn't go away because the outside backs are firing at the moment. And Joey Leilu are obviously available. What do you do? Again. What um, do you do? So, yeah, and look... Get further on, you want to keep Bailey Simonson as well because he's a young kid. You want to keep him here as long as you can for the future. Yeah, that's not so going to deter. I mean, he's a good team player. He he, he he's not going to be deterred by that. I don't think so. Excellent. Well, what good, about you? What are you going for? I want to get your stuff and recycle that and go tarps. I think tarps can can score first. Yep. I reckon I've got that feel that we're going to score early and score first and just mm. surprise that uh, Amy Park crowd. Big game anyway. Probably the we said last year, last week was probably the biggest game of the year. But this one against the team coming first, the bench being an away game as well, yeah. you know, did really give us a good indication of where things are at. Well, in that case, I'm going to change mine to John Bateman. Oh, he's I've, gone the change. Yeah, I, I don't know. I've just, I've Simon's just... in a bag of double now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yep. You're welcome, ba- you're welcome, Bailey, if you're listening. But I think <laughs> I think John Bateman's probably going to cross over, and he'll really fire up, especially down there in Melbourne. And for the second time on the Behind the Limelight podcast. Canberra Raiders historian, writer, and massive fan, by the way, David Heaton. Welcome back. Great to be back, Nick. Mate, just for, for listeners out there that uh, probably didn't listen to the last episode last year, tell us a bit about yourself, how you came to a position where you're writing a book about the Canberra Raiders' history. Well, I was uh, I played, played footy in the northern beaches of uh, Sydney, uh, gosh, and grew up as a kid and played at North Narrabeen. In, in fact, played 5'8 to Alan Thompson's halfback back then, so I was always... always preferred league, but being on the Northern Beaches, you played a bit of union. And it's kind of relevant to the story because I, I sort of lots of footy and then eventually was able to play a bit of group football when I was school teaching. Um, but that, I was then then headed to Canada to, uh, to, to do a PhD there and so life took a change. With the family, we were in Darwin. So I had a whole block of years where basically I wasn't following football of any kind. And then one way or another, and I was delighted to make the move, I came to a, a really terrific literature department um, in in Canberra, uh, and that was in mid-1985. Uh, all those avid Raider fans out there would know that uh, Mal Meninga is signed late that year. So I t- went with a couple of boys, I had three kids then, but the, the first two were boys, and we went out to Seaford Oval. And 
absolutely the connection made then was walking into Seaford Oval was exactly like Brookvale Oval uh, in the 1950s when I was kind of growing up. Better view, though. Uh, better view, absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> well, not quite so because I used to sit on the top. Those were the days when a whole bunch of kids used to sit on the roof at Brookie Oval. Mm. Along no, I meant see if it was better. Oh, it was see if it, was, see if it <laughs> yeah. was better. But Brookie Oval, we were looking down because we were on the roof. You wouldn't be allowed to do it now. Dave, well, it'll be easy to say that you mentioned you had the rugby league bug in you and then you went on to totally. some academic sides of things. Every part Did of it. Did Canberra reactivate the love for rugby league? Did it bring it out of you again? Going going there, you know, having having come just before Mal Meninga and the group arrived was fantastic. I'm so pleased to sort of look back on that because you weren't sort of, you know, get, coming in at the point at which... You Meninga weren't on the bandwagon. I wasn't yeah. on the bandwagon. Well, early far from it. Days. In fact, it was you know the boys used to collect cans and bottles at Seaford Oval. I remember doing that. Yeah, yeah. There, there you go. It was mm. a take them over to the canteen, get a few <laughs> cents, and buy yourself some lollies. It was you great. Got it. Rites yeah. of passage. See, and, and so that attracted me greatly. So it was really Nick, kind of rediscovering what I loved about footy. You know, and and this is before Meninga, and then we get Meninga, and and as we know, I mean, Kate Carnell, who was the chief minister then, she and I knew one another, one way or another, and 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 we, she heard me on radio on ABC Radio referring to life pre-Meninga and post-Meninga. Mm-hmm. And that's what it was all about, you know. Mm. I mean, and once we had those players that come in that first bunch, which I describe in the book as the best recruiting sort of yeah. um, group that any team has ever managed in the history of rugby league. What was the group. hype when Mal came? When Mal signed and in that big cover in Rugby League Week when he's in the Woods' jumper... As an outsider and as a journalist, that kind of thing, what was the vibe like around the town knowing that big man was coming, an international was coming to play for this club? Well, of course, he was a sort of, I mean, he, he wasn't untried because he'd made his reputation, you know, a, a reputation already. Mm. But he was, you know, and there wasn't risk involved either, but it wasn't, you know, with Mal coming, he wasn't an, abs- an established international. Um, there was a little bit of risk, in, well, there was considerable risk involved in, in him coming here. But one way or another, and, and people forget, Raider fans forget, that 1986, which is the year when we have got on board Malman Inga, Gary Belcher, Steve Walters, Gary Coyne, Chicka mm. Ferguson, was not a very good year at all. In fact, mm. I, in, the, in the book, I quite rightly refer to it as a as a grim year. It was for a whole range of reasons that people have to get the book to to read through it or perhaps to recall. But then you go into 87, and then yeah. you pretty much say that the rest is history because that and that season, which didn't begin all that well you know, comes out of the blue and one way or another we build. And that's when Mal started to play with, with, the, with the confidence that he would play for the rest of his career. That's when you start to see certain things happening. So that 87 year, mm. the whole idea of you have to lose a grand final to win mm. a grand final comes to the fore. Manny were the better side in the grand final, but there wasn't much in it. Um, Plus. Yeah, yeah, there's a couple of calls in there too. Yeah, there were. There were there were calls here and there, and then eighty-eight. Before you go too far into the into the (laughs) the football side of things, I just want to reverse back and then go forward to now. Yep. So we're going back to the future here, but you talk about uh, how you got involved in this project. I mean, the Raiders board obviously identified a situation where. Um, they needed to capture the history of the club before it was too late. Yep. Um, so tell us a little bit about how you came to be involved in that and, and go from there. Well, I, I can tell you that, that, that when, when Ricky came on board at the end of 2013 into 2014, it was instantly the case that when I was reading what he was saying and how it was, it was being reported in the Canberra Times, uh, I liked it immediately. I was one of those football um, fans who was utterly disenchanted by the reality of Super League. 
Okay. We know that the Raiders so had to away. jump. I, I pretty much, not, not for, of course, from going to watch the Raiders, but definitely from that sort of enthusiasm level that so many rugby yeah. league supporters, you know, they walked away. It so did. that was, I brought out a book with Lex Marinos on rugby league called League of a Nation in 1995. And it just came at the moment where even in the introduction, I, t- I, I was lamenting Super League's onset. I was, I was worried. And, I, and as, you know, history shows that everyone was right to be worried. The Raiders were uniquely affected. We were the best mm. side then. And one, and but we did have some of our champions coming to the kind of later parts of their career, but we were uniquely affected, and that would affect arguably the next fifteen years. Well, um, the first thing it affected too, they cancelled the Raiders versus Wigan game that was supposed to take part in nineteen ninety five, and they were going to come and play at Bruce Stadium, and that mm. would have been because a year before they played the Broncos at ANZ, and it was a blockbuster of a game, it was a sellout crowd, it would have been such a good fit for Canberra, yep. and Ken Arthurson. Put the red pen through it because we'd signed with the rebels. No, absolutely. I mean, but coming back to what you know, Ben's question that was really so. I, you know, there was a sort of hiatus of enthusiasm, not for the club, and still I make sure mm. you know the family were going week in, week out mm. for the years that sort of went through that period, and 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 there there were years of struggle. But when when Stick came on board, when Ricky came on board uh, at the end of thirteen, and I and I really felt for Dave too, as we all did, Dave Ferner, because he put his heart and soul into that, into the as he does in you know everything he does. But when he came on board, I liked what he was saying, and I can't remember precisely how it worked out, but I do know that that John McIntyre and I had a coffee not just down the road at Charnwood. Yep. Um, and we had a yarn about what I would like to do because I'd written Nick. You, um, I mentioned I think the last time that we were talking together. Um, and that was that I was I was so enthused by the Raiders' season of 1987 and I'd never written on sport. I'd only written mm. on literature and republicanism and various things. And I'd, But I did something for the Canberra Times, at least one thing every year until 95 uh, and, and Super League. So I had a lot to sort of almost fall back on. I'd, I'd written parts of the history then. Well, you'd lived through it. Yeah, mm. I, I, exactly right, Ben. I mean, I had lived through it and I'd written about it. Things... Reading my columns, and all they weren't columns, they were articles. Mm. All the things are coming back to yeah. me, you know. So I mentioned a JR about this and 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 a Don, um, and and one thing led to another. He liked where it was coming from because I a big part of the pitch that I put in was that this it's basically a generation from 1982 to more or less you know when I started, and it was time you know this was the right moment to for this club with a unique history. Things to be written, yeah. but as soon as I started to dive in, I was lucky enough in 2013, pretty much right when we're talking, uh, to have been the um, centenary of Canberra historian for the ACT government. So I knew the background of Canberra history, yeah. and that took me back into the deeper history. And as soon as I did that, mm. I realised I was hoping there'd be connections between the more or less the present and the deep past. Well, as soon as I found that Glenn Lazarus, the brick with eyes, great great grandfather, yeah. came to Queanbeyan in the late 1850s. And his sons were key figures in the emergence of rugby in this region. Well, I was off and running to yep. give that sort of background story. I was hoping for it and it appeared in spades. Every bit of research I did from then built us up to 1982 and then you've got the wonders of sort of 1982 onwards. Because we look at the book and the way that you've put it together, it's not, um, as you said, just a history of the Canberra Raiders from the round one in 1982 up until you know, the present day, it's not that at all. It's, as you mentioned, the, the historical focus comes into it and that's what I love about it because uh, the three sections, you, you talk about not only the history of the Canberra Raiders but the history of the game in this region and um, I've been lucky enough to have a bit of a look at 
um, the book and, and seen um, the way that it's been put together and some of that historical stuff from, you know, like you said, back the 1850s right through the early parts of the 1900s. I mean, there's so much significant uh, rugby league information and, and rugby league story that's come out of this region that people just won't be aware of. You've got, you've got the Monero team beating the Poms in 1977. Mm. You've got that, all of that energy... But that energy feeds on what had happened in the previous decades. And, I mean, without going into any, any more detail, enough to say that I was also thrilled that Frederick Campbell, well, those people who know the Campbell name uh, and associate it with Duntroo, and this is the grandson of the original Robert Campbell, this is the guy who comes back from England because his brother had died in Cambridge and his mother had died, comes back to, to Canberra and brings rug, rugby with him. You know, he played in the first major game of rugby as the captain of the Sydney University team in the 1870s. Well, he brings rugby down. You've got him. You've got Edward O'Sullivan, who's the member for Queanbeyan in the state, in the in the colonial New South Wales Parliament, who's the first, actually the second president of rugby league in Sydney. These are the two fellas who are actually putting things together here. Mm. But then you get, and I think it's even better, and that's the beginnings of rugby league here because there's Bob Craig, um, dual international, um, both codes, dominates through the war years with the Balmain team, and the Queenby and Warrigals, as they then were, just think, oh, we, we want to try and improve our game because Yass is cleaning us up. So they invite Bob Craig down, and thus you get Rugby League kicking off in 1921. Well, that's only 13 years after Sydney. So mm. that when we talk about the foundation clubs of Sydney, I actually think our story, mm. given that it's right there and yeah. goes back to the earliest days of rugby in New South Wales and Queensland, is... As good, in fact, I would in the book I say it's even better. That Bob Craig story is a, is, a, is a, I mean you couldn't script write it any better to to have that kind of quality. He brings the game here. He's here for which which amazed me. I thought he must have been here for like twelve months. This guy was here for a few weeks. He turns Queenbeyan's fortunes around and rugby league's off and running. And then you've got internationals. You've got you know international mm. games. Um, a whole period, Johnny Hawke, who comes on board, leads St George to the Premiership in 1949, all the international games. In fact, I was reading the other day, listeners might be interested, that here we have with a very strong Wigan connection in 2019, that Lord Macdonald, who was in the English government, the Paymaster General, was present at the game in 1950. He'd played, played for Wigan. Um, had, a, had a strong background mm. and there was a connection even then which I find interesting against 2019 there it is. in 1950 so yeah. go, what a story to put 70 down 70 years later still there happening. might have been I think one time at Seaford Oval where a touring Lions team took on an Australian B-side at Seaford Oval and Mal Meninga was playing in that team and they were in the yellow jumpers okay yeah, okay. yeah there's so many so it's many, out on YouTube but that's a the, the whole point we're trying to make here is that yeah. there's a story beyond the story, and that's what I love about this book. Um, How much in the book is that, that pre, the pre-1982 I, era? I, I would love to have written a huge amount, you know, but that's a, that's I had a whole the likes book of there, Ben and, and everyone else looking, and I had to kind Putting of really... Put boundaries on it. I could have put really an Encyclopedia Britannica together. It <laughs> yeah, could come later, you know, volumes two and three. But I had the to prequel. really... <laughs> but the, the whole prequel. point was to kind of... To, 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 to hopefully that people understand these things don't come out of of nowhere and mm. much as of course the McIntyres, the Furners, those families were so critical mm. in, in, in getting the team up and into the competition in 1982, you can work your way back into the richness of rugby league and before league union, you know, going all the way back to the earliest games of, of rugby um, in Australia. 
we played some of them, you know, so that you've got a fantastic background. So let's go to the title of the book, Absolutely Bleeding Green. Give us the, the backstory on, on where you came up with that uh, idea. Well, that was a simple one. It was only a few years ago. I was, Canberra Times ran an old photo, not a very old photo, but a, but a photo from a few years earlier. And they were a blonde-tipped Jared Croker um, next to Alan Tung with their sort of knees high because of kicking. And the, they ran that photo and they had Jared as then captain um, saying, you know, what's important about, you know, kind of the significance of the of the spirit in the in the Raider club, and he talked about Tungy, and then he said, apart from anything else, that he absolutely bleeds green. So I knew right then and there, with the present day captain as Jared was, and a previous captain, and the sort of player who was arguably the most important player in some of our toughest years as a club. Mm. That was the kind of perfect connection, and to have to be actually for him to be saying, and it wasn't it wasn't original, but it was the kind of phrase that sort of once I saw it again, I thought that's got to be it. So he said that he absolutely bleeds green. Well, it was a natural for me to say to, to use as the title "absolutely bleeding green," um, which is what we all do for this club. Dave, uh, where you were before you wrote the book to now, where is your passion for the club lie now? Well, I. I Nick, it's, it's, it's this simple. I have been so delighted that at the very point that I've been writing this book over the last two, two and a half years, the Raiders have made even further strides in giving real meaning. Ben, Jason Mathy, obviously, JR, all the individuals that are contributing to this, and that's giving real meaning to the history of the club and to former players of the club. So that there is absolutely no doubt, it's been said by a few people from other teams in recent times, that we're doing better on that connection or connecting back to former players than any other club in the competition. That's really important because it does fit exactly with what Rick was talking about in those first weeks of 2014 that so switched me on. You know, that this is something special and that it's not irrelevant by any stretch to say, well, how are you going to go in any given year? But once you start to kind of pull together a real fabric, and that's what we were struggling with at moments in the period from about 2000 to about 2010, that sort of sort of time when it was tough and having to pay overs for players who weren't all that great, etc. These were tough years. In fact, Sydney, there were, you know, there were murmurings constant every year. Well, let's pull them out. You know, they're not doing the business. Yeah. They're no good. Well, that's not going to happen. That's gone. That's gone forever. So that's, I think, you know, I'd like to think that the history um, that I've just written will play a small part in that, but, but just that, because the club is really getting its act together with the, the you know, the, the miracle of the Viking clap, uh, not originally ours, but certainly now ours, you know, which is just the best thing going, along with this, this connection. You know, the players, they're all on the same song sheet and it's, and it's happened in an organic way, which I really mm. like too, you know what I mean? That, so the players are really feeding into that. And this connection of, of present-day players to former players, the, the success of the Forever Greens of the last few years, mm. and now we're coming into the 30th anniversaries mm. of these premierships. It's, it couldn't be better. I think you'd agree when I say that the, the, the club's probably, and this is going on some of the stuff that you've got in the book, it's probably going back to embracing the community values. And it's not just about a football team winning games of football. It's about everything else that goes along with that. And that's what was probably missing in that, that era that you talk about. And it's um, guys like Dave and Ricky that, that brought that back to the club and have been able to reinstill those community values over an extended period. But it's finally starting to um, get into probably the outer circles rather than just the inner sanctum. 
Exactly right, Ben. Well, it's I found mean, its identity back again. The Green Machine have found their identity back again. I think they, Ricky's they really... Ferns, you started to bring it back, and then Ricky's come back in, in floods, and they're the Canberra Raiders again. That, that's it, precisely. I mean, when Ferns, exactly that, and the people that he was, that he was hiring then. Mm. And it started then, and then Rick sort of felt it passionately, and I suspect his passion was the greater because he obviously was thrilled really thrilled to be coming back here, having yeah. had some, you know, some good, really good coaching years with Easts and then not so good with Cronulla and, and Parramatta. But, you know, if the opportunity arose, he was always going to come back here for family and other reasons. That, you know, that, that worked perfectly. So, you know, and, and as soon as he came back and he's still, you know, talking about that reinvigoration, uh, he knew exactly what had worked you know, as a, as a, as a kid playing, you know, yeah. and the youngest, you know, as a young footballer, what had worked then. Um, and, and that's the sort of thing he wanted to instil. But he knew, because he, I mean, again, it's, it's perhaps even forgotten now, that they weren't the best years, sort of 14, 19, uh, 2014, 2015. And then, as we know, 2016 was excellent, but 17 and 18, we didn't make the semi-finals. So it was kind of holding the line against things that, you know, you wanted to fully instil or reinstill into the club. And that's what's occurred, and we can see it, I mean, you know, 20,000 the other day for a great game of footy, but, I mean, that's what we're seeing now. And that's not going to change. I mean, the, the, the fundamentals are more secure now. Just before we wrap things up on the actual book itself, tell us when are we going to be able to get our hands on it um, and, uh, and what can we expect when we do get it? Well, we'd love to think that we're going to have a terrific... We're having a great year this year and, and, and hopefully it'll be even better. The grand final, I believe, uh, Ben, is October the 6th. My understanding is between then and probably in the next few weeks after that, the book will be available in all good bookstores. Um, and, and I know the club's got some great plans in terms of, of, of talking about the book um, around the region and beyond. Um, and it's something I'd love to think it's going to... I've written it that way. I hope it'll have a shelf life beyond what a lot of books have, simply because it's you know so intimately connected to what's going on here in the club at the moment and what will occur in the coming years. I mean, as I said, talking about those fundamentals, uh, you know, we've got real kind of pillars in this club now and I think that'll mean that the book will play its small role in the maintenance of that in the coming years. If we happen to win a premiership or two, that would be real icing on the cake and we might have to go into a revised last chapter in that case. <laughs> um, but nevertheless, it will be available. Um, and I know, again, the club's got plans for that finding its way into the hands of a lot of the former players, etc., etc. And I think that's great and I hope it sells not only in the region but in some of our sort of feeder areas like the Riverina and, and Brisbane and, uh, and north of England. Uh, who's to say? But, uh, yeah, it's going to be exciting. <laughs> Celebrating the 30th anniversary of the Green Machine's epic 1989 Grand Final victory. So this week we continue on with Camp Raiders historian David Heaton. Now Dave, we mentioned just uh, previously, 1987, we had to lose one to win one. 1988 rolls around, we get a new coach, little known Tim Sheens. After two weeks, uh, we were none and two with some injuries, but apparently the board were considering giving him the punt. They decided not to. We put seven games in a row. We lose a few in the middle due to some rep duties, but then everyone comes back. Mao comes back from his broken arms, and we put on nine row to get to the big dance. Yeah, exactly, uh, Nick. The, you know, it was a fascinating season because we were we were not going none too well. You know, in the mid nineteen eighty nine season, 
but but we put things together and of course the rest is history. You could talk about a million different things in, in, and only on what happened in the field in that sort of the first 80 minutes and beyond. But two that I'd, I'd single out um, per se didn't happen on the field. Well, I guess they did. One of them, Ricky Stewart, there's our, there's our wonderful coach, uh, present day coach, uh, who talks about discipline to the players and quite <laughs> rightly so. <laughs> Um, this is the young man who heads up to Sydney in 1989 for the biggest game of his life um, and he's got everything packed away as he goes up there and when he's sort of pulling his gear out of his pack, the one thing he hasn't got is his boots. Um, and I, I love that, not only because of the fact that he'd forgotten his boots for the grand final, but also for the fact that he played, lovely Queenbean story, he played in his uh, earlier period with Campo, mm-hmm. the mighty David Campisi. And one thing he knew from playing when they played with the Queenbean Whites rugby together was that they had the same shoe size. So there he is, he lobs in Sydney. Campo, the previous weekend, had won uh, the, premiership, the rugby premiership with Randwick. Um, Stick gets onto the phone to him and says, you know, we've, we've got a pair of boots. Um, Campo, of course, has, and as it turned out, Rick wore the, sa- the very same boots that Campo had worn uh, the previous weekend. Not only that, of course, he, uh, as Tom Keneally and many other lovers of league um, observed in that game, one feature of, of an extraordinary game, the greatest grand final ever, um, was that um, Ricky seemed to have the ball you know, pretty much on a string on his boot. Wherever he wanted to go, the ball went. I've often thought about this, and obviously it's quite... It was really important how Ricky played, and you spoke about how Mal used to quite ride him hard socially, saying that you need to be at our best, because if you're at your best, we win the game. Mm. Biggest game of his life. That might have been a healthy distraction for Rick, to just probably, geez, I've got to find some boots now before I play, and he's not getting stressed, and he's not, you know, worrying. It's probably something we can ask him later on down the track, but you look at it now in hindsight, it might have been a really healthy distraction, and then to come to get his boots with a clear head and go, right, I'm ready to go now, let's go Rocky Balboa style, and he goes out there and... Kicking those brown steeds, punching them down. <laughs> was, that were like everyone was like a forty twenty. I tell you what. You know, it's interesting. Just on that, a sideline. But as as brilliant as he was in the eighty nine um, grand final kicking, he was even better. In no, nineteen ninety. Nineteen ninety. Churchill. Oh, he kicked, them. Them, out he kicked yeah. them out of the game. He kicked kicked them out of the game. And kicking was a different beast back then too. Absolutely. I mean, if you watch the nineteen ninety grand final, I think that the, the kick off and then Laurie Daly kicks it straight back. To Penrith. Yeah, I mean, that yeah. doesn't you, you would never see that now. It's such a territory game and it's yeah, all about absolutely. building field position and pressure. But back in those days, the kicking was so important and Ricky was that guy that could do that spiral torpedo yeah. kick that would go 50 metres on the fly and then hit it, it hit the point and roll for another 20 no, metres into touch. No, it was. And, I mean, yeah. and this pinpoint is accuracy. No, so yeah. Exactly. It was exactly. an amazing feat. Um, Both sides of his foot. I mean, you know, of his shoe. I, I mean, imagine, it was just brilliant. I can imagine the reaction brilliant. right now if one of the boys forgot their boots in the dressing room. <laughs> You'd be out for a week. <laughs> but I think, I, I think that's a ter- uh, you know, terrific story. But the other one has to be, uh, you know, John Woods, uh, mm. the Reverend Monsignor John Woods. Because, you know, he'd associated himself with the club in years before 1989. He was so popular. Rick's always talked about the fact, you know, God knows if you're ever in a run with him, you know, he'd just thrash around, you know, ahead of all the players. Mm. So he's fit as in his early 30s. But this is the young man who uh, is so kind of um, immersed in it, writes to Mal Meninga a a short letter, which I've seen the original, you know, well, actually a a facsimile of the original. It's going to be the book. Huh? It, it's certainly yeah. in the book. Um, I wanted to run the exact facsimile. I couldn't do that, but the wording is in there. Mm. But he writes to Mal, um, and he and he makes a connection not only to his background uh, in the Christian religion. So he talks about a, a verse from from the Bible, but also 
he he mentioned and and I I said earlier in the interview that uh, I was six well I was six years in Canada uh, studying over there. And what happened over in, in, in Canada in that time was that Terry Fox, who was affected by cancer, um, decided he would run across uh, Canada to raise money. Uh, and it almost brings tears to my eyes now to, to see that young man every day running with one leg, basically hobbling across Canada, and he didn't make it. He died before he got to the other side. And I can still remember the Hollies had a story, uh, had a song, He Ain't Heavy, He's My Brother. Um, and they were playing that, but they were also playing a Rod, a Rod Stewart song. And the Father Woods referred to that. And the whole, the, the essence of it was to follow your dream, that, mm. That, mm. that you can achieve. And Mal was so impacted upon that he had Father Woods come and talk to the group and to, 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 to re, you know, and, he, and Mal had yeah. read that out. It was extraordinarily moving and it was one it, wonderful element. It is an story. incredible story and I had the pleasure of talking mm. with Father Woods earlier this year on the podcast about the letter and how it all came about. Uh, and I asked him um, about that day when Mal said, you know, he read the letter to the team the night before the game and then he said to him, um, I want you to say a few words to the guys before the grand final. And this, the... the the contrast in the two dressing rooms on that day couldn't have been mm. further apart. There's Balmain guys in there with jerseys four sizes too big, <laughs> yeah. trying to cut them down cut, and, cutting, and cutting and scissors and, and taping them up. <laughs> yep. Mal goes to the coin toss with Wayne Pierce and he's, he's Mal Relax. smells the nerves on him. Mm. He can't believe how nervous he is. Yep. And then the, the other dressing rooms just so calm. And yeah. Father Woods gets up and he speaks to the group and and it just everything is just going their way before a ball's even kicked. Was a microcosm of the whole game because at a half time they were down twelve two, the better yep. team, and they were yep. still calm and positive, mm. and we can still get them. We'll yeah, get no, them. I mean that you know Shinzi had always you know throughout his coaching career that idea that you know if you're playing good football, mm. you're going to get the break, the, of the, will the, turn. the break of the ball, and it doesn't happen every single time, mm. but it usually does. And in that game, that's exactly what we got. So that the the team that continued to play. It's the sort of football that was changing the way rugby league was played. You know, I, yeah. I talk a lot about that in the book. There's no doubt that we that the Raiders basically changed rugby league for the better through that period and continued. I mean, we only have to know that since 1982, we've scored more points than any other team, you yeah. know, through that, that, that period. That Raider football is, you know, we, we changed the game. And, you know, at that moment, and, and have continued, even in the, the toughest years, we were still throwing the ball around, but that's what we got. We got really attractive football that so many, you know, all of Sydney was switched on to. We won so many admirers, yeah. you know, in that game and beyond. So and it's, you know, nothing's changed. The Raiders were everyone's second team after that's that That's right. Too. So yeah, put yeah. your historian cap on. What did that do for the city of Canberra and, and Queanbeyan, that, that premiership? You know, I mean, the, the one thing we always hear about, you know, it gave, gave Canberra a soul – given that I've written so much about that going back to the kind of 1920s uh, in terms of the sort of bigger picture of the city. But there was, you know, that what I mentioned earlier, that idea of pre-Meninga, post-Meninga and the way, you know, the way things unfolded in the later 1980s. There is absolutely no doubt that the city changed. Um, you know, when you see there's a daily road from a from a fellow involved in the early history of Canberra, but someone had put lorry in front of daily. <laughs> you know, the, you could go on and on. There was so, you know, the green milk, they're all the things green that Green sausages. Changed. The yeah, green yeah. bread. The green yeah, had it all. Yeah, and, and the streamers everywhere, they became a permanent. And, you know, that's had, had Super League not happened, that would have been a continuous thing. But mm. I think there were a few, there was a little bit of a hiatus, as I said. But it's just such a, it, it, it really did um, uh, add something to the city that the city's never lost. And that's why I think just in the last few years it's been so good 
to see the return yeah. of that, that real kind of fibre, the the original, not just we who were turning up, you know, in 2004, 5, 6, 7, when there might have been mm. seven, six, seven thousand there, but, you know, to see that, 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 that revitalisation has been such an important part of the history of the club. You definitely feel it. I mean, when the Raiders are going well, there's a, there's a different vibe in, in, the, in the city. I mean, that's there's, people well, walking around, time as there's well. people walking around with Raiders shirts mm. and jerseys and, um, you know, it, it's just... There's, there's we there's all that, become significant they, you know, in the town. <laughs> it's, and, yeah, I mean, mate, you like to see the Brumbies do well, and I do, <laughs> uh, you know, and I was wrapped in that first generation of, of, of Brumby players. But it's exactly right. You put it perfectly that you know when the when the Raiders are doing well, there's an extra kick in the step of the oh, city. It just galvanises the whole yeah, town, yeah, and yeah, there's a buzz. It does. Dave, just in wrapping up now, I asked, I've asked the players, coaches, and members of the '89 Grand Final experience. It affected us in so many ways as fans, as media people, as as players. And I asked this question to all the players: Do you take an experience out of the '89 and apply it to your life today, metaphorically? Is there something that you take out of that and kick? Until life today, the well, it's, 89 it's, grand final. It sounds an interesting one. I think I've mentioned this before, but I happened to be in America on a 12-month exchange teaching in 1989. At about 2 a.m. Um, America time, I started to get calls at the end of the grand final from friends, from relatives, and I will never forget that experience as long as I live. The phone was running hot in deep southern Mississippi from 2 a.m. to about 5 a.m., as this succession of calls came through, mm. people so thrilled. My older brother, manly supporter from way back, couldn't was was beside himself with the, sort of the enthusiasm. But I got that from everyone. So that if I take something away, Nick, it would be the uniqueness of that experience with my kids. You know, we had three kids then, uh, one to come. But the uniqueness of that experience, which incidentally is exactly what my fourth and final child, who's now in her thirties. She is so thrilled with what's happening at the moment. I cannot describe. <laughs> she would like to revisit the so glory of 1980 so very yeah. soon. So here's the question. You were obviously Southern Mississippi. It's 2 to 5 a.m. When did you actually watch the game for the first time? That is a good question, which I would struggle to answer exactly. Certainly as soon as I, as soon as I got back, which would have been... Um, I have to think at the at the end of 1989. I reckon it would have been in the first 24 hours. Because you couldn't I, just log on to KO no, and, you, and watch it back no, then. You no, you could not. No, no. I saw it in, in video for sure. <laughs> Within a day or two of arriving back in yep. Canberra, basically. And to watch that game there, knowing what had occurred, yep. to see all those great moments, which I hope I've done justice to in the book, was something you know beyond special. So, Where did you watch it, Nick? I it's was like the moon landing this for Raiders yeah, fans. Like, where, where, were were you? You? Exactly. where were you? Where were you? I was Absolutely. actually in Sydney. I was a five-year-old kid and our family had gone to Sydney and what makes it so disturbing is my uncle that I went with is a massive Tigers fan and why would he have signed off and us to go to Sydney on grand final day? It was some wedding we went to but we stayed at some relative's house and watched the game unfold and there were, what stings, brings to mind to me, there was – what are those things in the air when the aeroplanes do the writing with the something was going on saying go Tigers yeah and then of course. obviously we saw the whole thing unfold and my uncle was off his seat obviously mm. could feel the premiership and then Chica <laughs> Ferguson yeah. and then yeah, Jacko yeah. Jackson the drive home back to Canberra was really present but for me that was the kind of the start of yeah. big things to come because yeah. that year I'd got a show bag a Canberra Raiders show bag at the Canberra show or the Queenbian show yeah and I had this 1989 Canberra Raiders corporate calendar. And I showed everyone that calendar yeah. that came over. Yeah, I still yeah. got it to this day. And that's the, the beginning yeah. of my obsession with the Canberra. Well, for me, it was a similar story. It was um, So we were 
we, I was born in Wagga and, and lived there until I was eight years old. And then my dad had a, a, a work opportunity, which just happened to be in Canberra. And the year we moved here was in 1989. Mm. So okay. what did we do for family entertainment on the weekends? We used to jump in the car and go to Seaford Oval wow. and watch the home games. And this was my first introduction into being at a live rugby league game. Mm. So the, the day of the actual game itself, we didn't, we didn't go up for the game. We actually went back to uh, my grandparents' place, which they lived in a – a place called Aura, which is just outside of Wagga Wagga. And my, my grandfather used to be in charge of the water treatment works there and they had a house that had joined that. We watched the game there and there's a photo of me and my brother and we've got the the, the T-shirts. So I remember they used to be able to get the T-shirts and it yeah. was the, the cartoon raider Tyler, standing yes. over Tyler, the top Tyler, of the place yeah, yeah. with, his, with his foot on the tiger. Yeah, yeah, my yeah. brother and I were wearing those T-shirts uh, and there's a photo of us with the flag at wow. full time waving yeah. the flag and that's just – how it all started. Oh, and it's and amazing. And it's these sort of epic moments to, to sort of almost mm. to win your first comp that way, you know, established. That's why I think it's been so important. That period was so easily kind of regained, not easily regained, mm. but but sort of reconnected with right. in mm. recent There's years. So many people, yeah. so many people our age, Nick, that are Raiders fans because yeah. they grew up when they absolutely. were just yeah. dominant. And, uh, absolutely. absolutely. It's like the kids that grew up in, um, that were kids around 2005 are all, West Tigers fans because Benji right. Marshall was flicking balls yeah, yeah, out the yeah, back yeah. and doing all this amazing stuff. It's very generational dependent. But what I'm loving seeing is now, um, and it goes back to that community aspect, is the kids that are coming to our games now yeah. are Raiders fans again. Yeah, absolutely. And I love that. That's yeah. a great thing. Well, I think yeah. for us as well, Ben, in our, in our time, there was nine internationals. That's we right. had Mal yeah. and Ricky, yep. Laurie yeah, and Clyde, yeah. and they were all Australian players, and they were yeah. the best in the in the mm. world yeah. at the time, and they were in our own backyard, and you go to Seaford Oval – I used to go to Seaford Oval watch them train when I was a kid. Mm. And just to see these guys come out, I was like, wow. It was just really privileged to grow up in that era. If I can say, and I'm, I know I didn't want to say too much about the book at this moment, but but the dedication I thought long and hard about, and I finished up dedicating, I can't remember the exact words, but to three generations, uh, sorry, to yeah, to three generations of Hedens, uh, you know, absolutely bleeding green all, and those that will follow. And I think that's exactly it. We've got so much has happened in such a short period but it means that, you know, you're going to have a stitched on city and, and basically a whole sort of supported group forevermore. And never more so than than because of the, the efforts of the club in recent years. You know, it's something we haven't won a, uh, another comp since 1994 and yet something special has happened again. Mm. And that's yeah. that's mm. really important. Well, Dave, thanks very much for joining us. It's uh, been a we great insight. We could <laughs> talk <laughs> all day. This will be the longest podcast sure of the season. But uh, look, I can't wait. As we said, oh, all, all good bookstores, raidershop.com.au at the end of the year. That's right, uh, in sometime, my October. Oh, yeah, all some, good. All sometime good. Uh, definitely be- before Christmas. So um, keep an eye out for that. And we look forward to talking more about it when it hits the shelves. Sounds great, boys.